Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We gather members of our ICS community here to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This semester, we're tackling some big questions. We're asking our guests to talk about the themes of evil, resistance, and judgment as they come up in the course of their work, their studies, and their lives. I'm Danielle Yet, and I'm also a junior member at ICS. Today, we're talking to Aaron Retman, who is a philosophy professor at Trinity Christian College near Chicago and is currently the chair of the ICS Senate. We'll welcome Aaron to the podcast in just a minute. Is there something that just irks you, that gnaws at you, that people just don't understand? For our first segment, Here's My Thought, we're giving folks the chance to set the record straight on any issue of their choice, big or small, in five minutes or less. This week, it's my turn. I'm Matthew Otto, and I'm the Associate Artistic Director of the Toronto Children's Chorus, Choir Director at Christ Church Deer Park, Musician, Conductor, and also the artistic director and founder of Incontra Vocal Ensemble. We are thrilled to be presenting a concert here at the ICS on November 30th at 7pm, entitled Creator of the Stars of Night. Hope to see you there. Here's my thought. As I mentioned, I'm a choir director and organist in a church, and my pet peeve is music and liturgy. Not that music happens in liturgy, but rather people's perceptions around music and liturgy. Often, I receive comments such as, I want to hear Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, or Amazing Grace. The list goes on, and you can add your own favorite hymn choice. Ultimately, my goal in liturgy is to choose music and repertoire that highlights the different readings or lectionary within the church year. Sadly, as much as I love Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, it doesn't always work liturgically. So you may ask yourself, well, what goes into choosing music for liturgy? As I said earlier, I start with the readings, with the lectionary, the theme of the day. Usually, the first reading and the gospel tend to go together thematically. So that forms the basis of my hymn suggestions or hymn selections. I do always try to find a hymn that people know. Sometimes not always love, but know. So they feel that they have an opportunity to really sing out 
and sing the theology and have a good sing, because ultimately that is part of the liturgy as well, the work of the people. Everybody is coming together to sing, to worship, to praise God, to pray. From there, I look at usually the offertory hymn, the hymn that's closest to the homily or to the sermon of the day. The sermon of the day helps to summarize the readings for us lay people, for the average Joe. The offertory hymn is thus a really important opportunity for us to musically contextualize what is going on in the readings and hopefully to contextualize what has just been presented in the sermon. There is that old adage, you don't leave the church humming the homily. You hum, hopefully, one of the hymns within the liturgy. So then after looking at the offertory hymn, I tend to choose the commissioning hymn or the closing hymn. And that's where that old adage you don't leave hum in the homily, works. If they can hum or even sing some of the words of the closing hymn, that's important. How does that tie in with the offertory hymn or the theme of the day? It fits by summarizing the history of the church, hopefully some of the themes of the liturgy, and celebrate the liturgical season that we might be in. I suppose what is the most irksome to me is that people think that we just throw together hymn selections. Indeed, in some traditions, people do, and that's okay. However, if you do it thoughtfully and prayerfully, this takes time. You sit with the readings, you reflect on them, you pray about them, you think about the congregation, you may think about your choir, or the person who's singing them or playing them. Now, I'm not saying that you only program things that fit with the lectionary. Definitely not. But it's the dance, it's the balance of how can we enliven the readings that we hear in the liturgy with the theme, with the charism of the community. In other words, some hymns may not work with every community not only because they're not familiar, but they may just not speak to who they are at their heart. Ultimately, every community has some sort of musical identity. Some may like more classical music. Some may like more traditional hymns. Some may like praise and worship. I'm not saying here that you shouldn't use different types of music or that you should incorporate different types of music. What works for your community, you want to do. But what I am saying is that music is always and should always be selected carefully with great intentionality and with great awareness of the community. For our second segment, we at ICS are reckoning with the problem of evil, exploring possible modes of resistance, and discerning moments of judgment as a community. So we're asking our guests to talk about how these issues intersect with their work and lives. Today we're joined by Aaron Rutman, who is quite possibly Critical Faith's number one fan, and the chair of the ICS Senate. 
Aaron teaches philosophy at Trinity Christian College near Chicago, where he is, among other things, currently teaching a course on Augustine. So welcome, Aaron. Thank you for joining us in person. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So as we were preparing for today, uh, you mentioned you hearkened back to one of our recent episodes with Gideon Strauss and mentioned Gideon's self-description as a uh, dispositional Calvinist. And you said instead that you'd call yourself an intuitive Augustinian. So why don't you tell us what that means? Sure, yeah. (laughs) I was especially thinking about Augustine because of the theme of evil resistance and judgment. So when I say I'm an intuitive Augustinian, what I'm referring to is that Augustine's way of accounting for evil has always, as far back as I can remember, has always just seemed right to me. Uh, One of the places where you can see it the most clearly and where my students and I have encountered it last week is in Book 7 of the Confessions, where Augustine, in the process of his long intellectual and moral conversion, says that it was when he finally read some books of the Platonists, shout out to the Platonists and Christian Platonists <laughs> among us, he, he finally found an intellectual architecture that helped him make sense of the, the experience of evil in the light of God's all-pervasive goodness. That had been uh, an intense problem for him and one that he, it was keeping him from fully embracing Christian faith because he couldn't make sense of what well, as a number of our own contemporaries, right? Couldn't make sense of the problem of evil. And Augustine's solution is to say, everything that exists insofar as it is, is good. Everything is good. All of God's creation is good. Evil is just the disorderedness of our attention toward those good things. So when we place lower goods, which are less beingly than higher goods. When we place lower goods above higher goods, evil is the result. So evil isn't so much an is as a happening, right? Evil occurs, but it can't ever be attributed to something that exists in reality. Well, that has, as far back as I can remember, that has always just seemed really right and satisfying to me. So when a couple of times a friend of mine who's a professor of theology at Oxford and knows a lot about Augustine, he, he focuses on Augustine, he's come to Trinity to give talks to students and has asked them in the context of talking about Augustine, well, do you know about privation theory? This idea that evil is privation yeah, yeah. of the good. He says, do you know about privation theory? And he gets blank looks from my students. Mm. And he starts describing what he means, and then their faces light up, and they say, oh, yeah, Repman told us about that. And <laughs> You're like, Whoo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. But I thought, oh, I don't ever want to describe it to them when I'm introducing it as privation theory, because privation theory sounds like one among a number of theories that you might take off the shelf and consider a bit. And for me, it runs much deeper than that. That was also, for me, it was, a, it was a, an important moment in my own self-discovery when I was a graduate student at Loyola University, Chicago. I was working with uh, Adrian Paperzak, who became my doctoral director, but this was early on in my first year. And I, growing up and being a student at Trinity myself, uh, which is in the Reformational tradition, broadly speaking, I had gotten the idea, I don't know if my professors told me this or if it was my own fault, but I'd gotten the idea that the way I had come to see things reformationally was unique to our tradition. Hmm. 
And then I met Adrian Peperzak, who for most of his life had been a Dutch Franciscan and had only recently left uh, his Franciscan vows and married his wife, Angela, and come to the United States to be a professor. And there was this uncanny kinship that we found in our mm. thinking. And I remember sitting in his office one day and trying to grapple with how this neo-Calvinist and this Franciscan had this uncanny kinship of our ways of thinking. And he said, well, we're both Augustinians. That must be it. Hmm. So I think that was in the back of my mind when I started claiming myself this fall as an intuitive Augustinian. <laughs> oh, this is a recent well, self-denomination. That particular phrase I, is just a borrowing and adaptation of Gideon's uh, dispositional Calvinist. What do you find so compelling, if you're able to put words to mm. it more than you already have, um, about thinking of evil as, uh, like you described, a happening and this kind of process of taking away versus thinking of it as like a thing. Hmm. Well, thinking of evil in this way as privation of the good certainly leaves a number of questions unanswered, and I would say unanswerable, in principle unanswerable. But it does away with a lot of, I think, worse questions and worse problems, which is why Augustine was in favor of this view as well. If evil is a thing in the world, if it's part of the world, then either you have to say that the creator, however you name the creator, the creator has built something bad into the world, or that the creator is not all-powerful, right? Is not the only source of everything. But if everything is good and evil is just the misordered response to some of those good things, then it sounds it sounds cheap to say then the creator is off the hook, but <laughs> then then our trust in God can be absolute or as absolute as we can muster. Now, the difficult part, and I would say the the principled difficult part, is that you can never on this account explain evil. You can account for it by saying it's privation of the good in a general way, but you can't say why it is. So you can say what it is, or actually what it isn't. You can say how it works as a misordering of those good things and their relationships to each other, but you can't offer a why. Because a why would be to say that there is some reason that you can come up with why this evil is as it is. And to give a reason is to attribute to, attribute to it a kind of goodness. Right? Here is why it should be this way. So every account that says, I can tell you why evil is in the picture, like some theodicy, for instance, in fact makes evil a kind of good. Hmm. And that is unacceptable to me. It's interesting. I'd actually never heard that put that way hmm. the, for the kind of inexplicability of evil. To speak in Aristotelian terms, maybe. Yeah which is not my home territory, but <laughs> to, to give a why for something is to describe it in terms of its final causality, yeah. mm. what its telos is, what its purpose, its, yeah. its goal is, its, its uh, orientation. And that means that it has a place within the whole structure of things, which makes it a kind of good. Now, all of this is big-scale stuff, right? Yeah. And in the context of the Confessions, Augustine is trying 
on a grand scale to account for evil in a cosmic way. And the so he offers this uh, Platonist solution, which is cosmic in its scope, and also has a certain limitation. He says it's only the the Platonists could only take me so far. Hmm. And it was only Jesus Christ as the mediator who could show me how I could actually take up this goodness. Now that doesn't, one, one thing that that account in the Confessions doesn't do is give us a whole lot to go on in terms of practical, ordinary, everyday evils and what resistance to and judgment of them might look like. You see what I just did there? I brought in the other parts of the theme. <laughs> For that... I'd like to talk a little bit about another book of Augustine that I have encountered much more recently and that just knocked me back on myself, and <laughs> I'm still amazed every time I read it. So it's a book in Latin that's called De Catechizandis Rudibus, uh, which the best translation I found of the title is On instructing beginners hmm. and specifically in this it's beginners in faith so he's not talking about catechesis in the in the formal sense but actually pre-instruction the very first instruction and there are two things that got my attention about this book right off the, the bat first is uh, something absurdly hilarious in the very setup of it augustine has gotten a letter from a deacon in carthage a deacon whose name is deo gratias coming back to that in a moment. And Deo Gratius's job includes giving first instruction to people who are inquirers about the Christian faith. So there are people who, for whatever reason, want the goods that the church has to offer, and maybe that's because the church is becoming more socially acceptable, or maybe it's that they have a genuine interest, but for some reason, they want the goods that the church has on offer. And it's Deo Gratis's job to give them a first account of what Christianity is. And he writes to Augustine in despair and disgust with himself. He says he is always discouraged and disheartened by how paltry his words seem to be and by what he perceives as to be a lackluster response from those who are receiving his instruction. So here's the funny part. Deo Gratias, whose very name means thanks be to God, is grumpy <laughs> and discouraged. <laughs> it makes me want to wonder whether Augustine made up this character, Deo Gratias, just to have this little irony. But the other part of it that caught me so profoundly is that Augustine's, both the setup of Deo Gratias's request and the character of Augustine's response made me feel closer to Augustine than I ever have before. Remember the setup. Deo Gratias is offering instruction to people who want some other larger good, but this is a prerequisite to getting to that. And Augustine diagnoses some of what's going on behind Deo Gratias's concern and then speaks to it in some profound ways. Augustine knows what it's like to teach intro, <laughs> right? Most of the teaching that I do, I do get to teach advanced courses in ancient and medieval philosophy and that sort of thing, but the, by far the bulk of my students are students who are taking a compulsory philosophy course mm. as part of their uh, foundations requirement, their liberal arts core at Trinity Christian College. So students are here because there's some larger good that they want. And here's this compulsory instruction near the beginning that they 
may feel rather uh, unsatisfied with or, or and, and that I worry a lot about how I'm doing, hmm. right? So Augustine diagnoses uh, Deo Gratias's concern, and he says, I, I'll give you some advice about exactly what you should say, because that's what you asked for. But before that, and then again after that, he couches it before and after, he says, I want to deal with your attitude. Hmm. And his way of resisting the, the particular besetting evils that plague an instructor of beginners, his ways of resisting are dispositional. And it's all about cultivating cheerfulness and love. And the word, che- the word that gets translated in this latest translation as cheerfulness is actually hilaritas, hilarity. <laughs> so he doesn't mean uh, silly hilarity, but there is something of that sort of overflowing, jubilant character to the kind of cheerfulness that he's talking about. So he lays out six different possibilities for why Deo Gratias might be so grumpy. He says, well, on the one hand, there's this contrast between your silent perception of the intellectual realities above you and the world of noisy speech into which you have to descend when you're giving this. Second, he says, it would be much easier to have a script laid out ahead of time and maybe a script by somebody more learned than yourself rather than having to do the awkward work of improvising and adapting your words to the hearer's particular reality. And third, he says, having to go over elementary things again and again is tiresome. I teach intro every semester, (laughs) right? Fourth, he says, maybe your listeners seem to be passive. Maybe they seem to be unengaged, uninvolved. Maybe they're sitting there falling asleep or they keep looking at their phones, you know. <laughs> Fifth, he says, maybe you have more important things to do. Maybe you, you were called to this task of giving this instruction from some other thing that you were studying or some other task that you were doing for the church. And now you've got to go and offer this beginner's class yet again. And sixth, he says, maybe you're discouraged because here's a beginner, but you are overwhelmed by some scandal that has happened in the church, or maybe even in your own life, and you you don't know how to connect this beginner's enthusiasm with the awfulness of what you've been rocked by. And Augustine's response, so again, I felt like Augustine was looking over my shoulder with every one of <laughs> yeah. these six po- problems, right? He, Augustine has taught intro. But every one of these he has a remedy for, and the remedy is always some combination of cheerfulness and love. I think this is a direct application of that large-scale cosmic theory of evil that we were talking about before. The only way he can think of to combat the besetting evils of that, that plague a teacher is with goods that are higher than that particular evil, right? That transcend the the evil that the per- person is so worried about. So in response to the, you know, I have this lofty vision of reality that I'm that I'm silently concerned with and now I have to descend into the into the the noisiness of speech. Augustine says, consider for a moment the greater gap that exists between the heights of your understanding and God. And notice how 
eager people are to condescend to little children whom they love. They will gladly speak baby talk. And he says, a mother, you see mothers chewing up food and then putting it in their baby's mouths because they didn't have blenders and, and baby food, right? He says that kind of condescension is where the cheerfulness of love is evident. So he says you can do that too in your teaching. In response to the concern that it would be so much nicer just to have a lesson in a box that ready ahead of time, Augustine says love will make you unafraid of your own uncertainty and of the unpredictability of the hearer's response. So he says, and this is a quote, cheerfully allow God to speak through you in accordance with your capacities. Hmm. So cheerfulness and love, again, uh, he says, let let the moment happen in the way that it needs to happen, because then you can be authentically, cheerfully, lovingly in the moment, rather than defensively guarding yourself against what you're worried about. Third, in response to the, the concern that you have to go over things yet again, and isn't this so boring to teach intro for 22 years? Sorry, I'm being autobiographical. <laughs> Augustine says, our, our love, our parental style love, will allow the old to be new again. He says, notice when you're showing visitors to your town the sights for the first time, notice how enthusiastic you get showing them for the first time things that you know well. He says, let that take over. Let that cheerfulness inspire you and make it new for you again as well. And again, speaking autobiographically, that's my own experience. When students say to me, don't you get tired of teaching this over and over again? I say, it's new every time because you're new. Hmm. Uh, in response to the, the fourth one, the, the, the passivity of the hearers, he says, have a little sympathy for your hearers. You can't see what's going on inside their lives. Maybe they are passive because they're fearful in the sight of such awesome things. Or maybe they're shy. Or maybe they're lacking in understanding. So he says, gently encourage them and draw them out by asking some questions. And he says, maybe you should say something hilarious. He uses that word again. Maybe you should say, should say something a little hilarious to spice, and, spice things up, to reawaken their attention. Or he says, if you want to, you can be dramatic instead, if that suits you better. <laughs> I go back and forth between those two. And he says something really radical for his time. He says, maybe you should give them a seat. Hmm. Right In that culture, in that time, the one who's instructing, the one who's teaching sits down, and the one who hears stands, whether it's in church or in this other setting. And Augustine says, maybe the person is distracted because they're tired. Uh, they've been standing around for a long time. So maybe you should let convention go and give them a seat hmm. and that will help them to hear you better so again love and cheerfulness transcend all of the ideas about propriety and this student should be looking interested in what i'm doing in response to the schedule thing the fifth uh the fifth obstacle i had all these other important things i was going to do augustine says take heart you don't know what god is planning you don't know what god is planning for this so you should be like somebody who is called away from a task that you thought you were going to do by someone who knows better and approach it with what we in yoga call beginner's mind. <laughs> Augustine knows nothing about yoga, <laughs> but I would call it beginner's mind. Approach it by saying, 
I wonder what it is that God is going to do with this. And that allows a kind of freshness and cheerfulness to what you're doing. And then finally, in response to that sixth problem, the the scandal that has you so rocked, whether it's in your own life or something else in the church, he says, our despair at that scandal should be consoled by the very presence of the inquirer. Mm. In the in the midst of all this trouble, there is a newcomer here presenting oneself and wanting to hear the story. And so both our hope and our judgment, he t- talks the language of judgment, our judgment of this scandal will give us greater intensity and vigor for our teaching. So he says, set aside your concern, but actually use your concern about this situation to give you even more energy to tell the story in an even more compelling way than before. So that for me is where the the resistance and the judgment actually flow together. He says, if you are concerned about evil that's going on, you have to resist it by being cheerful and loving to to your hearer, to your student. And in the very act of that, you can bring judgment upon the evil by saying, well, I also teach my students to sing Desmond Tutu's words, goodness is stronger than evil. Hmm. Love is stronger than hate. Light is stronger than darkness. Life is stronger than death. Uh, and that's what I hear in Augustine's teaching. Um, the compassion on the part of Augustine is, is, is really startling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and his ability to be open to what these beginners are, are feeling and al- allowing for many different uh, motivations on their part is yes. really is really startling indeed and if you just again allow yourself to stop in the midst of your carefully prepared or carefully thought through discourse when you notice that the student is is passive or mm-hmm. disengaged and ask an honest question how are you doing what's up uh, why are you absorbed with what's going on in your cell phone instead of attending here, maybe you'll get an answer that will help you to better reach them, to Mm. actually cultivate a shared standpoint with them rather than staying on high and worrying from within about how you're not connecting. Isn't that also the having a starting point of wonder? That seems like that's a key, I mean, obviously, element of what you're bringing out too. So there's this compassion aspect where you are acting like for the sake of this person mm-hmm. who is kind of confounding your efforts otherwise in some ways or your ideal efforts yes but that that impulse to like you know ask a question and to like allow this thing to be new and like all of these things seem to start with that stance of like being in wonder of mm. what is happening like at that moment which i think is really interesting yeah, yeah. He doesn't name it in exactly this way in that context, but what I'm hearing and what you're saying is gratitude. Yeah. Right. A fundamental sense of gratitude to God for the goodness of all of this, and then to say, "Okay, I find myself in limited or imperfect circumstances. How can that gratitude be applied in a way that reorients what's what's lacking in this situation, rather than denying it, rather than pushing it away?" Yeah. It's also really interesting this uh you likely haven't heard this episode yes yet but the episode that we just recorded before this one okay um we had a 
uh, man in who was talking about his kind of research uh, toward youth empowerment and mm. things like that. And something that I got out of our conversation was uh, something along those lines as well, where what he was advocating for and what Augustine and you also seem to be advocating for in this text and in your fascination mm -hmm. with it is cultivating this ability to hear other people kind of before they demand to be heard or mm. like apart from them like demanding to be heard and that that opens up all of this these possibilities into how you can engage with this person so like especially toward youth in your situation like mm -hmm. toward you know undergraduates mm -hmm. and you know toward the, the those who would be beginners that that is key to how you cultivate this cheerfulness in the face of what is otherwise very intimidating or yeah very big large scale mm. concerns yeah so that in what i'm hearing you say so that rather than having them have to come on their knees groveling to you 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 beat them to it and come running out to them mhm mm yeah which i th yeah that difference in orientation yes which is another also harkens to like the ordering of or reordering of priorities yes. in some way. That difference in orientation really interests me anyway. So, yeah. I'll have to think more about that, but I think that sounds right to me. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. And he just, I, what, I, what I was intrigued by, by his list of things is how he parses out the problem in yes. that sim somewhat simple question, it seems like, into so many different possibilities. Right. Like that, that is also compassionate on his part yes. or toward his either real or fictional character here <laughs> um saying that you know i'm hearing all of these things behind what you're saying mm -hmm. and i'm not just going to be like this is the answer you know even though he provides a number of answers he's right. trying to right. provide multiple answers in order to get at what's actually might be going on and yeah. maybe even to bring out something else that he might not have accounted for right yeah, the part that I skipped over, and that I won't talk about at any great length here, but the part that I skipped over, he 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 puts some words in Dale Grazias's mouth. He says, "Well, I guess maybe you want me to just give you a lesson in a box, <laughs> you know, something that you can use." And he says, "I'm not going to do that for some of the reasons that he lays out here, but instead I'll give you two. So he gives them a short he gives them a shorter version and a longer version. And I hear that as, okay, here are some examples, Deo Gracias, but you're still going to have to know in the situation what it is that your hearers need. And you'll have to make a choice for their sake of some particular direction to take or not. And then he couches all of this with this concern about disposition. Uh, because even in the prologue, he says, I am far more concerned, not with the content, but with your disposition as an instructor. That, that is what will carry the day. Mm -hmm. That's also another point that interests me because it's easy to hear in a quick way Augustine saying, oh, just you know, be cheerful about mm -hmm. this, like your attitude's the problem kind mm. of thing. And, say like, and to take that to mean that you, know, you should just have a stiff upper lip for mm. lack of a better phrase at the moment. Um, but that also doesn't seem to be what he's saying. Like no. to say that it's a disposition problem is deeper than saying you just need to act like things are okay, for example. Right. Yeah. Well, and in fact, I didn't say this before because it doesn't come into that list of things that he offers the parallel problems and solutions. But even before he does that, he says, 
Brother Deo Gracias, lighten up a little bit. This is not his, his exact language. He says, be kinder to yourself. The very fact that people keep coming to you probably means that you're, you're doing better than you feel, right? Don't measure your success by how it feels within you or by what you can observe. Notice that your work is having some good effect. So he, he encourages him even on that level. He says, come on, brother, you're not, you're not as bad as you think. Lighten up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, something you also mentioned before we got into the studio was that this plays a big part in your in a current project that you're working mm. on, this text, or like at least the idea of Augustine on this cheerfulness. Yeah. Um, would you explain what you're working on? Gladly, a yeah. A long time ago now, I, I wrote a dissertation on Plato, on mm. love and friendship in mm. Plato. And I did that knowing that I always wanted to not only be a scholar of ancient philosophy, but to help Christians discover the Plato that they never knew, Hmm. right? To discover in a positive way the Platonic and philosophical underpinnings of so much early Christianity that is still with us. Hmm. And and this sits in my reformational heritage in all kinds of complicated ways, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I'm basically saying synthesis isn't such a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew that I wanted to do something to bridge these worlds because, well, it was even brought up as a critique in my in my defense of my dissertation. In the defense, somebody said, "Well, this this Plato of yours seems awfully Augustinian," and I had just, had to just say, "Here I am. Here I stand. I can do no other." <laughs> yeah. But for a long time, I wondered how to how does one do that kind of thing because that's territory that has been gone over a lot, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The, the the bridges of Platonism and Christianity, especially in sort of large scale dogmatic contexts. But about six years ago, I started discovering this more refined version of it, which is to look at texts of a selection of early Christian writers in which they are, I think, explicitly explicitly and sometimes implicitly drawing on earlier pre-Christian philosophical work, specifically for their practical work of Christian formation, of forming persons and communities. So leaving some of the grand dogmatic things aside and saying, how do these writers, in my case that that's especially Augustine, Gregory of Nyssa, Evagrius, and in some ways the granddaddy of them all, Origen of Alexandria. <laughs> How are they drawing on these pre-Christian philosophical spiritual exercises hmm. for the sorts of spiritual exercises that they are posing to the communities and persons that they're trying to form? So I'm trying to bring together the the discourse of reinterpreting ancient philosophy as a way of life, uh, as we've learned from Pierre Adot and others, and the the work in early Christian studies that has often reached now quite a popular level in, in Christian circles of retrieving the fathers and mothers of the church, right? Retrieving mm-hmm. the ancient practices and liturgies and those sorts of things. I appreciate both of those discourses. They don't talk to each other mm. very well. So for instance, in these often popularized versions of let's reclaim the ancients, there'll be some moment where the writer or the speaker says, oh, and these ancient 
Christians also had this hang-up about philosophy that they were so interested in. But let's set that, that aside. Or let's distinguish multiple moments in Augustine and say he had a philosophical conversion, but then he really got Christian and got in, mm-hmm. into the Bible. Uh, you see it even in really learned people that I will never get to their level, uh, like N.T. Wright, who is just brilliant when he's talking about the Bible and brilliant when he's talking about early Christianity, and who says the most dunderheaded things when he talks about ancient philosophy, mm. because it's all potted, right? It's yeah. all the the university ancient philosophy that has account of ancient philosophy that has arisen since the 18th century in Europe and and the and the wider world. There, that's my thumbnail account. I have a sabbatical next semester to try to weave some of those things nice. together into oh, an actual exciting. project that people could read. Well, we look forward to your post-sabbatical project then. Yes, we Thank certainly you. do. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure?, This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. Today, we're in for a special treat, and Aaron's going to share a pleasure of his with us too. So, Aaron, what's your pleasure? Thank you for letting me contribute to this part too. To tell you the truth, I wanted to think of something grand and lofty and that would prove to our listeners how cultured I am and (laughs) how wonderful Chicago is and that they should come and experience this thing too. But life is full. And to be honest, my pleasure has started in paying attention to what's actually preoccupying my family and going deeper with it as much as I can. So My daughter, who's in high school, is currently in a musical Mm. based on Roald Dahl's novel, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Mm -hmm. In fact, as soon as we finish this recording, I'm dashing off to the airport so that I can get home in time for the final performance of Mm. this musical. So in, in driving her home after late practices and all this sort of thing and looking forward to seeing the musical, I thought, I probably have not read Roald Dahl since he was read to me when I was, I don't know, a fifth grader. So 40 years ago, some 40 years ago. So in Mr. Wind's uh, fifth grade classroom, (laughs) shout out to Fred Wind. (laughs) So I thought I could do worse than to pick up the books again while I'm anticipating seeing the musical. So for my bedtime reading the last couple of weeks, I first of all read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Mm -hmm. and I got through that so fast that then I also read James and the Giant Peach. Mm -hmm. And what I had remembered of Dahl is how whimsical his treatment of things is. What I hadn't remembered quite so clearly, and maybe this is also on my mind because of evil resistance and judgment and Augustine, is what a keen view he has for how messed up things are in the world. Right? He's writing for children, but he doesn't ever pull any punches about the evil that's in the world. And the whimsical character is his way of resisting it and calling it out, right? judging it, because the, the evil things that take themselves so seriously turn out to be really quite silly. Hmm. And it's through whimsy that they are encountered, right? Th- through unexpected things through a peach that gets larger than 
could ever be imagined and bugs within it that get larger than could ever be imagined or through a great glass elevator that bursts out through the chocolate factory. These things are what show how small and paltry the evil is that that these children in the stories are encountering. So my next step, I'm going to see, see and hear the musical tonight. And then I know that Roald Dahl also wrote a whole bunch of short stories for adults, hmm. but I've never read them. Uh, so I, yeah, you're, you're wincing as I say uh, this, Danielle. Yeah, adult writer Roald Dahl is very different experience from children's writer okay. Roald Dahl. So just prepare yourself. I've gotten a sense for that. <laughs> yeah. I, his, his sense of the dark side is very yeah. much there, but yeah. I want to see whether there is any of, in a different register, if there's any of that same kind of whimsy that is a way of resisting that dark side. I love that that's your pleasure because mm. I adore Roald Dahl. Well, and I actually only came to Roald Dahl as, I guess, an adult. Yeah. So not very, a few years ago, actually. Um, and I'm a huge proponent for rereading or reading for the first time mm. children's books as adults because you do like have that very different kind of reading experience when you read them. And I was reading them to uh, kids that I was nannying, basically. And like they were very excited and I was very excited when I was reading them. But it, And have, being able to talk about like why you were excited for at those different life stages mm -hmm. is also like a very interesting experience. But yeah, Roald Dahl is such a perceptive writer. Can I cop? Uh, it's not a cop out, I swear. Go for it. But I think my pleasure is just today, the fact that we actually got you into the studio. <laughs> <I've been> looking, <laughs> like we've been looking forward to, the, I've been looking forward to this. We have. I'm not yes, going to, I'm not going to alienate you from that. Uh, we've been looking forward to this for so long. Well, so thank you. I, and this was just as joyful as I expected it to be. My pleasure is, and it's a bit weird, but is going uh, when you find stuff that you've written and you've completely forgotten about it, mm -hmm. and then you see it in a in a new light. So I was looking through uh, this note I have called like biblical studies or something. I found a poem that I wrote at the bottom of it. So my poem, which didn't have a title, it was just three lines at the bottom of a note, is a reworking of the last three lines of. Um, Robert Frost's um, The Road Less Taken, I think. Oh, The Road Not Taken. The Road Not oh, Taken, thank yeah. you. Um, but it has a philosophical spin on it. So I've entitled it Philosopher's Walk, which is oh, uh, yes. a walk that Gideon likes to take at U of T. Um, but this is for the philosopher. So Philosopher's Walk. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I exclaimed, false dichotomy, and proceeded to contract poison ivy. <laughs> That's it for our show this week. We hope you'll stay tuned for the rest of the semester. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Mark Standish. You can follow my co-host as at Beware the Yeti. And you can also follow ICS as at INSCHR. 
And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your students, tell your friends, (laughs) tell anyone who will listen. (laughs) 